We're all missing travel right now, but you know what else we're missing? Getting more. With Priceline, you can save up to 60% on your favorite hotels, and you can also get exclusive deals on car rentals and flights. And when you save more, you can do more. More, wow, mmm, and yes! Priceline knows that every trip is a big deal. So when you're ready to book your next one, visit Priceline.com for the easiest way to get more out of it. And don't forget to download the Priceline app for even more savings. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. This is episode number seven of the That's So Mets podcast. I'm your host, Connor Rogers, uh, joined by my co-host here, Joe DeMeo. And as the Mets season, a disappointing season, no playoffs for the New York Mets, uh, comes to a close here. We do have a lot of exciting things to look ahead at because today we're going to go through the biggest positives. We are going to go through some of the disappointments from the 2020 season. And then we're going to look ahead, of course, to next year's draft already, get a little early draft season going, and we're going to answer your questions. So before we get to any of that, uh, Joe, how are we doing? And I know you are very excited to reveal your first positive takeaway from this shortened New York Mets season. I mean, I have a brand. So if you follow me on Twitter at PSL to Flushing, you know where I'm going with this first positive. There is no question that one of the biggest positives from the Mets this year was my guy, Edwin Diaz. And I had, I realized if I want to fight on Twitter, just tweet something nice about Edwin Diaz and people are ready to go. Uh, Diaz just completely changed from last year in basically every way. Uh, his He did, he still walks guys. Control will always be a bit of an issue with him. The 2018 season with the Mariners is, Honestly, that's never going to be replicated. That's one of the greatest relief seasons ever. So that's not going to be replicated. But let's be honest, Diaz solidified himself as a legitimate closer this year. I don't think there's any other way to look at it. If you want to say you don't trust him if there's guys on base and you don't trust them because of how bad he was in 2019, I totally get that. I mean, in 2019, he was someone that you could have DFA'd without any issue but game changer this year 175 era fip just above two struck out 17 and a half per nine which is more than he struck out in 2018 just diaz looked much more in command this year he had some rough outings early and then you know a couple ones here and there which are gonna happen uh you're not gonna have a perfect reliever but edwin diaz to me solidified himself as I am perfectly good with this guy closing games for me in 2021. I might still be alone in that, but uh, they have to add bullpen. But I don't feel like the Mets need to be replacing Edwin Diaz as closer necessarily. If, if they can get better, then I'm fine. But uh, I don't. I don't think it's going to be quite so easy to do. It's absolutely a huge positive, right? You look at it. Diaz is under team control for the next two years, so he's going to be on the New York Mets. You know, he's only going to be 27 next year so this is a player in his prime this is a player that you know after a little bit of a bumpy start really dialed back in and was a strikeout machine had some big time performances like you said Joe you know he's never got no reliever is perfect but the ERA was great the strikeout numbers were great 
and I think it's, you know, I know you're super high on Diaz. I know the fan base is still terrified. I'm somewhere in the middle where I think I look at Diaz and go, man, with some better starting pitching next year, hopefully, and a deeper bullpen, because let's be real, the Batanzas move did not work out. Lugo got moved out of the pen. That's a lot of work for Diaz, right? Where you're, they constantly asked him to come into the eighth inning in terrible situations and then have to go get that extra out, or he was pitching on back-to-back nights, or he was pitching on back-to-back-to-back nights. I think I'm not trying to make excuses for Diaz, and I really don't need to because the numbers speak for themselves. He was very, very good this year. I think when you look at it, I think Diaz can be supplemented by going out and getting another legitimate piece for this bullpen where you're not constantly wearing this guy out. And I think that'll be big. And maybe that piece is going out and filling so much of the starting rotation that Seth Lugo goes back into the pen. And these guys are used in a rotation where sometimes Lugo closes, sometimes Diaz closes. They're not pitching a lot of back-to-backs. So I look at it. It's a big positive. Uh, It would be huge if he pitches like that again going into next year because the numbers are phenomenal and, and, you know, high leverage situations are going to scare people. I understand it, but you have to at least feel somewhat good about how Diaz finished this season and that, you know, listen, we've t- you say it the best. The process of the trade was bad. There's no arguing that, but we're at the point where you have to move forward and you have to hope Robinson Cano is going to keep hitting. Edwin Diaz is going to be a very good upper tier closer to get the most that you can out of that trade and honestly I'll I'll start right there with Robinson Cano as a surprise as a positive you know as something that and this is not I am as low on Brody Van Wagenen as anyone where I hated the trade but that doesn't take away from the performances that these guys had this year after being extremely disappointing in 2019 I mean you look at Cano's numbers a 316 batting average he, he knocks in, you know, 30 runs in 49 games. You, you come away with this 10 home runs, so the pop was there. It's really everything you wanted from Cano, and somebody that has been a great clubhouse guy here. I think the offensive numbers from Cano are, are super promising this year. Now, you're always going to wonder, can he stay healthy over a long season? Is he going to be open to more DH opportunities? There are still issues with acquiring Cano. The money is no longer one of those because Steve Cohen is coming in, and now, you know, Cano's salary is not going to hamstring the Mets pinching pennies over and over. So that's a really good sign. But let's be real. I mean, if this is the Robinson Cano, even close to the Robinson Cano you can get for 2021, that solidifies this lineup across the board so much because, once again, the pop was there, the average was there, uh, some really big hits, some really clutch hits. So I think that was something where I come away from this season and go, listen, hate trading Jared Kalanick, hate trading Justin Dunn, hated the trade. But if you can somehow start to get these big-time positives out of Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano while adding to this team, not so much the lineup, because the lineup is going to be a big conversation point on this podcast today from a lot of the positive takeaways, but it would be a really, really big boost to this team for what's going to be a real baseball season in 2021. Yeah, you can't complain about what the guys that they got in that trade that, as you mentioned, bad trade, always will be a bad trade. If the Mets won a World Series last year or this year, you know, you could have made an argument that it was worth it. But 
they missed the playoff both years, so the trade is no good. But regardless, Robinson Cano had an awesome year. For most of the year, he was the Mets' best hitter. Uh, so I, I don't know how you could be unhappy with the performance of Robinson Cano. The only issue is obviously his age and length of deal left. So while the money may not be so much a factor, it's still you know twenty million bucks. So it's still per year. So it still counts as you know a significant sum of money. And you just have to hope you could get as close to the end of that deal before he falls off the cliff completely. But yeah, 100% Robinson Cano, awesome year. Uh, another positive that I want to bring to the table is the emergence of Andres Jimenez. We certainly have met, mentioned that in the past, but Andres Jimenez got added to the roster kind of, I would say, unexpected. I did not have any expectation that Andres Jimenez would break camp with the team and he started to slump a little towards the end, but all in all, a very impressive year. He showed that he could play shortstop at an everyday level. He played third base, which he did, didn't really have a ton of experience with in the minor leagues. Played that just fine. Just an all-around high IQ player, showed athleticism, ran the base as well. Uh, his batting average, of course, slipped towards the end. He ended up hitting only 263. But this is a guy that I think is firmly in position to be considered the sh starting shortstop for the 2021 Mets, you know, short that they don't get Francisco Lindor or Ahmed Rosario, you know, has a resurgence and gets it figured out because certainly there's going to be a lot of pressure on Rosario. What are you going to be for this team going forward? Are you going to go play winter ball and pick up an outfielder's glove and play center field? Are you going to play some second base, some third base, he, he's going to have to really figure out his role on this team. And if Jimenez could, my thing is I still would like to see him get stronger. Uh, he did hit three homers, but you just look at him. He's a guy that still needs to physically mature some more. So hopefully hitting you know a, a real major league caliber nutrition program and weightlifting program. I don't want him you know to come all jacked to camp next year, but you know a little stronger so those hard line drives that he's spraying, maybe a couple more of them carry out. That's kind of just, you know, part of the physical maturation. But no, couldn't couldn't be happier with the performance of Andres Jimenez. And that would be a surprise slash positive because I did not have any expectation of him having an impact on the 2020 Mets. Same. It was pretty startling, to be honest with you. When he made the team, I kind of took it as, hey, we've heard about his glove and we've heard about his speed. Maybe with such a bizarre year, they want to keep him around to really be on top of him and get him some reps from a defensive standpoint, use him as a, a weapon in the extra innings rule as a runner. And, and I was just wrong. I mean, the guy was ready to go. Uh, he was super exciting to watch this year. He seemed to do everything the right way. He took advantage of the opportunity. I mean, he just turned 22 years old. So you, you go back to your point, Joe, There there is a lot of room there. Uh, for him to put on muscle mass and, and grow into his body. And he's not an overwhelmingly tall guy, so it's not like the frame is, you know, the frame is going to be a big player, but he showed some pop with that swing. The speed element in the defense is something this Mets team lacked, and, and he's going to bring it next year. So really excited about Jimenez. And that leads me to the other rookie to be really excited about. I did not think this Mets team would have a rookie this year that, that we would be talking about, that we would be excited about. They had two, one in the starting rotation, one on the infield. And I'm talking about David Peterson here. 
I mean, we were expecting maybe to see him this year. Uh, maybe he would have to make some spot starts. Maybe if there was a couple big injuries, he, he'd get a shot to be the fifth starter. I mean, by the end of the year, this was this guy was the number two starter in the rotation. He really was. And for a young pitcher, I know he's 25. He turned 25 in September. So, you know, he's really coming into this year as a 24-year-old, a first-round pick, um, you know, a, a college draft pick. So somebody that you were feeling, and tons of college production at Oregon. So somebody you were feeling would be pro-ready earlier than your typical draft pick. But still, to come in and in a year where nobody in the starting rotation was giving the Mets a chance, right? Like when Rick Porcello pitched, when Michael Waka pitched, um, Stephen Matz, oh my God, the team was down 7 nothing in the first two innings every game. And to their credit, the offense was so good, there was plenty of times where they came back. But you will never be a successful baseball team if that's the scenario you're in. But fortunately, besides Jacob deGrom, they had a guy, a rookie in David Peterson, that was able to keep them in games. I mean, you go through his game logs, there's only one start where he gave up more than three earned runs. That is, like, really mind-blowing. Talk about giving your offense a fighting chance. He had one notably bad start where he only lasted two innings and he gave up five earned runs against a good Philadelphia offense. But the rest of the year... He was getting you five innings. He was getting you six innings of two-run ball, three-run ball, a couple shutouts, a couple games to finish the season against Atlanta and Washington, giving up one earned run in each of those starts. Struck out 10 against that Atlanta lineup. Went six innings, went seven innings those last two starts. Those are things from a young pitcher that should not be taken for granted. And quite frankly, I Joe, you can fill in here, you know, after when I'm done, you know, what is, he was projected as, but... From what I read, from what I was understanding, he was always looked at, hey, he's probably going to be a fourth or fifth kind of starter. And to me, I see bigger upside. I think he can be their number three next year. I think you can go into the year and say, hey, we got DeGrom. We're going to get Cindergard back. You know, fingers crossed. You go out and get a Stroman or a Bauer. But Peterson is a guy that should not be slept on as a, as a you know, ideally he comes into the year as the number four when you factor in Cindergard's return at some point. But, man, really excited to see the competitive nature he had, how composed he was. I was I was a really big fan, and, it, it, you know, for how much the farm system lacks, thank God they do have an arm in this system that was able to come up and, and pitch a good amount of innings and really be a gamer out there that gives your really good offense a chance every night to win the game. Yeah, and Peterson coming out of college uh, when they drafted him out of Oregon, he really seemed like a number four starter, workhorse kind of guy because he's a big dude. He's like 6'6", 240 or so. He's got the build to eat 200 innings consistently. And he made a mechanical adjustment this spring, actually, with, with some help from Jeremy Accardo and uh, Jeremy Hefner. He actually added some velocity this spring because when I watched Peterson pitch in Binghamton, he was really 89 to 91. And I saw him hit 94 on the gun a few times this year. I might have seen 95 or I'm misremembering, but he's definitely hit at least 94. So he made a mechanical adjustment, actually added some ticks to his fastball, which I think is going to be crucial kind of for his long-term growth. But Peterson, you, you can't be disappointed. He got called up like you know, I'm, I don't need to repeat the stats that you just said. He kept them in ball games every every single time that he took the ball. And 
you could put him in pen in the rotation next year. Outside of DeGrom, that's the only guy that I'm willing to put a pen as in who's in the rotation for, you know, when we enter spring training 2021. I would like to put in pen Trevor Bauer, but uh, we're going to have to wait on that one. And, and I am, you know, kind of half joking too. I think that would be a big splash if they went out and got a Bauer, but it is nice when things have just gone so poorly with this rotation. Like I, we always knew Matt's is a guy that gives up a lot of home runs and, and I guess I could take it right there. Cause we have not talked about any disappointments. I guess we'll go right to Matt's. I mean, Matt's has gone from someone that you go, Hey, maybe the upside of this guy is a number two or a number three. And then you go, okay, realistically he's easier four or five. But can he get you through, you know, can he get you a lot of innings? Can he keep you in a decent amount of games? It's sad, especially for a local guy, a guy that does a lot of great things in this community. Um, and it means a lot to me because it's four first responders. And, uh, you know, I like, I root for Steven Matz. Like, I root for everyone on the Mets. But it, it always felt a little different, him being a local guy and, and genuinely seems like a really good person. He's at the point where he doesn't look like a major league pitcher. And, you know, he finishes the season with a 9.68 ERA. His last, his last three appearances, Joe, he gave up 10 earned runs. 10 earned runs yeah. in three appearances. He got battered. He got absolute. It's batting practice out there for Steven Matz. It feels like it was 10 years ago where he made his season debut, and I think he threw six shutout innings against the Braves in July. And you sit there and you go, man. I don't know what it is. I don't know if people in the Mets organization see a flaw that they want to fix, you know, because he's a free agent in 2022. So it's not like, you know, they're, he's he's not really a real young guy anymore. That you're This isn't like if David Peterson comes out next year and gets lit up, they're not going to pull the plug and give up on him. Steven Matz is, is going to be 30 next season where a sneaky 30 where you're like, man, it's he's not useful for us in the rotation doesn't look like he can do anything as a long reliever it's really disappointing but you that's what you have to call it he is one of the biggest disappointments when they needed him most Marcus Stroman opt out Noah Syndergaard got hurt we kind of knew Rick Porcello would stink we kind of knew Michael Waka would get hurt or stink or both and he did but Steven Matz we needed a big two months from Steven Matz and we got the furthest thing from it yeah, it was really disappointing, and as I just said a minute ago, how we can't put anyone in pen in the rotation, Steven Matz is going to be a very interesting case, because in arbitration this year, he made he would have made $5 million if we had a full season this year, and you're going to get a raise in arbitration, that's just how the system works, He's, there's no way you can make less even if you really stink, so the Mets have to weigh, do they want to pay $6 million to Steven Matz to say, all right, it was a tough year, and maybe he competes for a fifth spot. Is that worth $6 million to bring Steven Matz back to compete for the fifth spot? Do you think they care anymore about I, that kind of money? I don't know. Serious question. Uh, I don't know. It's tough to say. I, I guess it depends what else they do. Like, are they signing Bauer and Railmuto? Are they, are they going crazy? Or are they being reasonable with Sandy Alderson where it's like, all right, we'll sign Marcus Stroman back. Uh, maybe we'll sign Real Muto or trade for someone that makes you know some solid money somewhere, and we need to fill the back end of the rotation. So six million bucks. Let's see. Let's give Matts another full spring training because he looked great in the original spring training. 
his stuff was up, and I had some optimism that you're going to get a good year out of him, and he was so far from that, it's unbelievable. I I think they might end up tendering him. He, he's a non-tender candidate, but I think they might end up tendering him because what other choices they got? Like, they don't have anyone to bring up from the minor leagues. Peterson was your guy that you were bringing up, and he's here already. Are they really going to sign three free agents or two free agents and trade for a starter? Something's going to give, and I think you might see Steven Matz get a chance for the fit spot next year, despite how poor he was this year. So that's yeah. that bear that bears watching. Um, I have well, a wild question I want to throw at you. Yeah, I'll put you in. The, I'll put you in the GM seat or the Sandy seat. All right. If you had a choice. Would you say the money is exactly the same, but you could only keep one? Would you bring back Rick Porcello, or would you give Steven Matz his arbitration money? I'd give Steven Matz his arbitration money. I think he has a okay. more. I think he has a more recent track record of better success. I mean, Porcello's two years straight of ERAs over five and a half. Like to be that's honest bad. with you, like that's so bad that Porcello probably shouldn't even be getting a real major league deal. <laughs> to be honest, in the winter, or at least it should it should be a very small one if he does get one. That's he's been brutal, and I don't think he's trending in the right direction. His hard contact rate against is awful. He doesn't really miss bats. I mean, nice guy. His post press conference after his last start, I actually felt bad for him. But no, I, I think I'd take a shot that we can rejuvenate Mats to be a fit starter. I don't know if that's possible, but I would. I think I'd rather give that a shot and then have some minor league deals, maybe some priority minor league deals signed that if Mats does crap the bed, you can move on to you know a different veteran that you signed. Uh, mm. That's that's what I think I'd do at least as of, as of this recording. That's what I would do. Uh, a, a disappointment that I want to bring up, which won the few on the offensive side of the ball, Wilson Ramos was an utter disaster this year. And that, oh. I think it's part of why you see all the crying for JT Realmuto. Ramos last year was a so-so catcher. His framing wasn't great. He sometimes didn't block balls great because he doesn't move very well. His throwing was just okay. But he hit great. So everyone was just like, eh, that's okay. Yeah. Usually with catching, you have to pick one or the other. There's, It's not like there's a wealth of catchers out there that field, throw, and hit. You usually have I mean, to— Piazza was even one-sided. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Piazza was actually an awesome receiver and blocker and framer. Mm, he just couldn't throw. Point. He just couldn't throw. He almost hit Victor Zambrano in the foot with a throw once when, they were, when he was trying to throw a guy out at second. <laughs> but Ramos did nothing this year. He didn't hit. His slugging percentage was 387. Like, he— didn't hit for any power really at all. He hit a couple homers, but didn't hit for power, didn't hit for average, didn't get on base. He looked helpless behind the plate. He missed four or five tags that it just looked like a guy that was physically incapable of moving anymore. Like he spun around backwards. It, it, he was an utter disaster this year. And that's why you see so much crying for JT Realmuto, not just because of how good he is, but because of how bad and how big of a disappointment Wilson Ramos was in his last year as a New York Met. I mean, I've never seen someone look that unathletic playing Un- field in baseball. Yeah. Right? Like it was like when you knew a throw was coming home, you're like, man, the time it takes for him to 
catch the ball, collect himself, and get his body down to make a tag. I've never seen anything like that in baseball before. It was like, it was truly, like, baseball always blows my mind because it's definitely a complex sport, but as a fan, when you just watch it for, you know, 20 plus, 25 plus years, you think you've kind of seen everything, right? And you take for granted little things. This was the first year in all my years of watching baseball where I went, wow, the Mets starting catcher in Wilson Ramos is not athletic enough to play catcher right now. And I've just never witnessed this in baseball before. A guy can't get down and make a tag. Or sometimes he just wouldn't catch the ball. Like it was wild things that was going on. I'm actually, this is like, I don't know if I've become like a glass half full Mets person recently. I never used to be that way. Maybe it's because the Jets are so bad that I'm looking elsewhere for optimism. But I actually am really excited to see whoever is playing catcher for the Mets, how it helps the pitchers next year, where it's like, whoa, we hit rock bottom this year. We got as bad as we could be. Like, what is DeGrom going to look like next year? What is Syndergaard going to look like when he comes back? What is Peterson going to look like? So I guess if you're looking for an optimistic approach, uh, man, if if you're Wilson Ramos's agent, and I know he, it's not a lack of effort or all those things, but I don't know how you get him a major league deal next year when he can't play catcher anymore, and now he doesn't hit. It was it was a tough watch, but I'll take this back to the positive side of things here. I want to talk about two players in the prime of their career who I think as Mets fans or, or any sports fans sometimes, you know, when you get excited about a first-round pick or you get excited about the future, it's you're often setting yourself up to be let down in some way. But with Michael Conforto and Dominic Smith, guys that were drafted in back-to-back first rounds, Dom was taken out of high school in 2013, 11th overall, and Conforto was taken out of college in 2014, 10th overall. So, you know, Mike obviously made it up in an impact role quicker in a World Series. He's been up with the team since 2015 as a, as a young player. He was 22. But Dom, being a high school pick, came up at just age 22 in 2017. I mean, these guys are not even really in their full baseball prime yet. Conforto's 27. He'll be 23 during spring training next year. So he'll really, I mean, he'll be 28 in spring training next year. So he'll be entering his, his actual prime. Dom is still 25 years old. These guys are the real deal in, in really every aspect of the game. I, I know Conforto is not a perfect right fielder. I think he's a damn good one. He's got a good arm. He plays 100 miles an hour. He plays with an edge in the outfield. He's got this strong arm. I think we've seen improvements from him in right field. And Dom, we all we've heard about since Dom was drafted as a high schooler is how smooth of a glove he is at first base. And I'd like to see him at first base a lot more. Love you, Pete Alonso, but you're going to have to get used to DHing a little bit because Dom is a great glove at first. Putting those two things aside, these guys are offensive machines. I mean, machines. And when you see that with back to back first round picks that are still really young players, it's exciting. It's it's a rare kind of excitement in baseball where, Joe, you know this as much as anybody from covering the draft, you're disappointed from a lot of baseball drafts because the hit rate is, is so, the miss rate is so high. And just to see Dom come into this year, 
hit 316, hit for pop with 10 home runs. In a year where he wasn't even expected to have a full-time role, he's an extra base machine. I mean, 21 doubles in less than 200 plate appearances, 42 RBIs, and then Conforto hits 322, 9 home runs, 31 RBIs. I mean, they both get on base at an alarming clip. It's just one of those things where you go, man, it's we don't talk about it enough because the overall team success hasn't been there the last two years. But these two guys are middle-of-the-lineup machines that should be wearing Met uniforms for the next half a decade. Absolutely. And with Dom Smith, I think one thing that needs to be talked about is how much this guy went through to get here. He was a first-round pick, and certainly throughout the minor leagues, we all read about it, how he had issues with his weight. He had issues with food. Then he had issues with sleep apnea, and he went through all this, got to the major leagues. They signed Adrian Gonzalez over him uh, without giving him an opportunity. Just he struggled to really get a role with the big league team with any level of consistency. And then just Pete Alonso comes along too. And all right, now you're shuffled back behind the deck. So Dom had a ton of perseverance to get here. You know, Conforto, I'm sure he had his share of deals. You know, he had the shoulder injury, but this is a guy that within a year of being at Oregon state, he was playing in a world series. So, you know, he, he certainly had a much cleaner path to being a solid regular and now MVP, borderline MVP candidate. Dom Smith went through so much to get here and he's playing, he's playing left field where I give him all the credit in the world. He goes all out. He he smashes face into the wall in a meaningless game on Saturday. Just, you know, the guy gives his absolute all. He's not an outfielder. He's a first baseman, you know, like you said. So he's got to get to me. I'm with you. Dom should be the primary first baseman for this team going forward. Alonzo will get his days, uh, you know, based on maybe facing lefties. But Dom Smith's extra base hits this year, slugging 616, that is, that's all-star. That's, that is big-time power. And coming through the system, Dom was a doubles hitter. And it was just, yeah, yeah, he'll eventually learn to turn on the inside pitch and show more power. He has. Dom Smith has completely developed, and he's a prime example of everything doesn't develop the same. You know, you don't just necessarily dominate single A, you go to double A, then you dominate double A, then you go to triple A, you take care of triple A, and now you're a a major league regular and you go on your career. Dom dealt with so much to get to this point, and, you know, I I couldn't be more proud because, you know, I, I met him a couple times in the minor leagues, and as good a guy as you could ever meet and yeah his his performance certainly brings a smile to my face and like you said he should be a part of this team going forward I'm not worried about trading him I know that certainly has been something that was talked about over the last couple years and no Dom Smith is an absolute keeper and he should be the primary first baseman and let's get some real outfielders so we don't have to jam and jam him in left field much anymore it's just better off for everybody yeah, that would be nice. It really would be. And and one way you can do that uh, that won't make an instant impact, but down the road, is in the MLB draft. And we did say we'd talk a little bit of MLB draft 2021 edition today. So the Mets are expected to be picking 10th uh, overall. The last 10th overall pick they made was Michael Conforto. Pretty good selection. Happy with that. 
And Baseball America has come out with their first mock today where they were given LSU right-handed pitcher Jaden Hill. So Jaden Hill, who I, I read up briefly, a uh, guy with you know not a ton of college production, but apparently electric stuff. Joe, give us the lowdown, not only on Hill and this mock draft, but also what kind of you know talent can the – is this a year where the number 10 pick can get you a star? Is this a year where they have to go for a college arm because they're so depleted in, in pro-ready arms? What are your thoughts here very early on the 2021 MLB draft for the Mets, Joe? Yes, super early on, certainly, and – I can't wait for springtime when college baseball comes back and high school baseball comes back and I could really kind of dive into tape on these guys. But Jaden Hill is a guy that a lot of people are very high on just on, you know, throwing in workouts and bullpen sessions and just showing plus plus stuff. But he's really pitched out of the pen, mostly at LSU, very limited college innings, kind of reminds me a little bit of Justin Dunn. In a sense, at Boston College, he has better stuff than Justin Dunn did when he was when he was at BC. But similar kind of profiles that Dunn was a reliever at BC kind of until his last year of college and pitched really well and you know earned himself a first round pick from the Mets. But Jaden Hill is a guy that he's hitting a hundred miles an hour and he's got a plus breaking ball. He's got a solid changeup. This is a guy that, frankly, if he goes and has a nice year starting for LSU, he's probably not going to be there at number 10, to be honest. I mean, arms, if you're throwing 100 miles an hour and you're performing in the SEC, you're probably going pretty high. So I, I don't know necessarily how, that he'll make it, but if he's there, like you said, with the need for starting pitching in this system, especially more advanced collegiate-type pitching, Jaden Hill is certainly someone that would fit uh, but the Mets, historically, they're willing to take college pitchers if they fall to them, seemingly, in the first round. Ever since Tommy Tanis really took over scouting, uh, their focus has primarily been high school bats in the first round. That's really been mostly what they've done. But Justin Dunn fell to them. David Peterson fell to them. Anthony Kay fell to them. So they looked at those as opportunities where guys fell into their lap and are like, I guess we can take this advanced pitcher now. But, yeah, historically, they're looking for the high upside high school bat, and then pitching is almost every single year their second-round pick, dating back to 2011. I think there's one or two years that it wasn't. It's always a pitcher in the second round. It's just how how they draft. So, yeah, I, I, I'm excited to see really how this, how this season goes, and I can't wait to be covering the draft on a podcast because – Typically, I have a few friends that I talk to about with it, and you know, I write about it at SNY, tweet about it. And I DM it. you like every day yeah. for a month leading up to the draft, <laughs> yeah. being like, what about this guy? What about this guy? What about this guy? That's basically <laughs> how it goes. And now instead of me doing that every day, we will have at least one episode a week. I don't know. During the draft, we might have to really um, bump it up here and, and give the people what they want. So I'm, I'm right there with you. It is going to be a really fun MLB draft season, but... I think it's time to get to uh, the fan questions, what the people want, and we're going to – we'll be doing these. I, we should probably react to every big mock draft that comes out throughout the year. So it's a slow build where, yeah. hey, you got a couple – by the time it's February, by the time it's you know March or April, you already know the top 15 to 20 players or at least around the Mets pick. But the first question today from at Ben Yoel, 
What would be the ideal contract length you would offer Real Muto? You have to think it won't be less than six years. Well, I mean, if we're being ideal, four years. But <laughs> but I would have to imagine it's got to be at least five. I don't I don't know if it if it definitely will not be less than six. I think five is possible. It really depends on what his market is. But a thirty year old catcher. How many people are going to line up to pay him seven years? I don't think there's – I don't know if there's going to be any in the market that we're about to deal with because the Red Sox even basically came out that saying that there's going to be some limitations this offseason, you know, but we're still going to do our best to build the best team possible and, and all that. I think you're going to – Real Muta will get his. The Trevor Bauer will get his. The Stars will – George Springer. Those guys will get theirs. But when you go down a level, you're going to see some people, I think, you're going to get some values. You're going to get some guys that end up having to sign for less than they want to. But uh, in regards to Real Muto, ideally it would be four if we really want to play that card. But I would think you might have to go five and maybe have to throw in an option for a sixth. And we've mentioned this too previously on the podcast. When you're a big market team and you want to land a star player, Sometimes you have to go the extra year and just go cross your fingers and hope he's not completely washed at the end of it. But that that's for me. What do you think? So I look at this. There's rumors out there that they want to kind of use the Joe Maurer deal, which in 2010, Maurer signed an eight-year extension for $184 million, right? Now, you know, we'll, we'll see how that works, which you look back at that. That's a lot of money in 2010 when you think about how – you know, baseball contracts look nowadays. Now, do I think teams have learned their lesson? Probably. I think when you look at it, you know, an eight-year deal for a catcher, I feel like if the Mets went to that, it's like, are they bidding against themselves? That's what worries me with that. Yeah. And I'm the first person where I'm not really going to complain about any splashes they make this year because I'm just excited that they get to make one or two. But I will say... You know, you said it best. Ideal four. <laughs> it's not happening. No, no chance. Um, <laughs> now, where I think the Mets are in a unique situation where you don't have to go to the rumored eight years, you probably don't have to go to seven, is that I think the Mets have enough of a cash uh, flow, an incoming cash flow from Cohen, that you can bump up the annual average salary here where you blow out the market, right? Like there might be a team out there that offers JT Real Muto a seven-year deal, but a lot of the money's deferred and the annual average is low. Like say they offer him the seven-year deal, but it's $20 million a year. Say the Mets go to a five-year deal, but it's $27 million a year and all the cash is up front. It's not deferred. That's where you start to have a competitive advantage where it's not just a simple, oh, the Mets have all this money. Now you can go give a catcher that's going to be 30 years old a 10-year deal where you know you're screwing yourself for the final three. You know, he's an athletic guy, and he's he's in freakish shape for a catcher, but you still worry about the body breaking down at the position no matter what where you know you'd be screwing yourself at the end of that deal. The Jets can get the, – the Mets can get creative with this contract here that I, it'd be, I, don't, I don't want to say it'd be disappointing if they didn't get him, but I think they can make an effort here that's unique at this point where I, I think they can get him on a five- or six-year deal. I really, really do. I think they'll set themselves up where they're like, okay, we know by 35, 36, it's not going to be looking great. 
So let's just bump up all the money up front now and just make sure that we don't have, tr quite frankly, dead money uh, that we're stuck with, you know, in, in year seven or eight. You want to stay away from that stuff. Do you think that scenario is possible or likely, Joe? I definitely think it's possible, and I think that would be a, a route specifically with Real Muto that I would heavily pursue. I think if he's insistent on seven or eight, you know, we've talked about how much we want JT Real Muto. I think I draw the line at six. I think if it's any more than six, I'm going to let him go to somewhere else, and I'm going to go spend my money on somebody, my Steve Cohen money on somebody else. But I would, my ideal contract with some semblance of realism is five years at, like you said, a high AAV. I don't know if 27 is too high, but maybe it's 24, 25, something like that. And you're making him significantly the highest paid catcher of all time, but you're getting a length that is better for the team. And I think with so much analytics being driven into the game as a whole, I don't I, I don't I, I find it hard to believe there's there's a team out there right now that as good as JT Real Muto is that they're going to be willing to give him eight years. I just in this market and with the way teams are looking at things now, I'd be I'd honestly be surprised. I really would. Um, but yeah, yeah I, let's I, not forget we're coming off of a season where there was no revenue, no fan revenue. Yeah. Yeah. The pandemic is going to cause teams to spend less money. And that's where I think. Maybe that contract structure you're talking, maybe that's that's the right route to go. It's, hey, JT, look, we understand you want the security. We'll give you more money per year. We won't defer your money for 10 years after you're done playing. You'll get all your money. It's just going to be in five years instead of you know a seven-year deal. And maybe he's interested. I, I think that that would certainly be a path I'd pursue. And let's not forget in all of this, and you never want to put all your eggs in the prospect basket, but we've talked about it before, Joe. Francisco Alvarez is one of the, the, one of the best Mets prospects in their system right now. He's an 18-year-old catcher, but, I mean, let's be honest here. There are expectations that he is going to be a starting catching option in four or five years from now where, you know, you don't want to say, oh, we'll be blocked by Real Muto because we don't even know if we'll make it to the big leagues, but he's that promising where he was that big of a splash signing where, hey, if you get Real Muto for five years, that kind of times up where Alvarez should be ready to go. So I think that's an underrated factor in in the entire structure of the contract if, if the Mets do fortunately sign Real Muto. But the next question from at Dual underscore 75, do you feel they jumped the gun on Sandy's announcement before checking on Theo Epstein first? Also, can we convince Cohen to buy the Jets next? I'm sure he has leftover money. <laughs> well, I'm sure he does have leftover money. I don't think that's the problem. Unfortunately, Jets fans, uh, Steve Cohen's buying the Mets because he has extreme passion for the Mets. I don't think he really cares about the Jets, unfortunately. But, <laughs> but I, blame him. Th that's, that's definitely funny. Um, but as far as jumping the gun on Sandy uh, before checking on Theo... I don't know. I don't believe so. Uh, first off, Theo's under contract through this year. So it's not like they had free reign to go pursue Theo Epstein now. But you and I talked about this in text message a little bit. I am, I, I'm starting to think that the Mets idea is he brought in Sandy Alderson because he knows him. He trusts him. He certainly knows that won't hurt his chances in getting approved. And I think he's looking at trying to 
kind of create his own Theo Epstein. And I'm not getting ahead of myself because there's an argument that Theo Epstein is the greatest baseball executive of all time. So it's not like you could just grab a young guy and he's the next Theo. But I'm starting to wonder if the Mets' plan is Sandy Alderson team president and Sandy Alderson finds young hotshot general manager from the Rays, uh, from the Dodgers, the Cubs, one of these teams, and says, I'm going to groom this guy in the way to build a major league roster in New York. Because don't forget, you know, people say, oh, bring him back the old guard, bring him back Sandy. If the idea is to hire someone young for Sandy to groom to become the GM in New York, he's done it before. He knows what is expected, how to handle the media, and everything that comes with running the New York Mets. I'm wondering if that's the path. I wonder if they're not going to pursue the Theo Epsteins, the Brian Cashmans, the David Stearns, or they might try to create their own, which if you find the right guy, that's the right way to do it. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, it can go either way, right? If you if you look at it from the perspective of, hey, you know, Sandy's here, and, and Sandy has so many connections and the respect that he's the guy that you want having the conversation with Theo to say, hey, man, like, you're the smart one of the smartest guys in baseball. We have resources here that are limitless, and that is in free agency, that is in your scouting budget, that is in everything that you could possibly want. Or, like you said, Joe, Sandy could be here because Sandy should have an eye for talent by now. Like, you you go back, and I know I always go back to football. It's just natural for me, but, like, when you look at Ozzie Newsom with the Ravens, they were grooming Eric DaCosta to take over for like 10 years over there where it's like when a guy is that good at the job for that long, he not only has the connections to the people, but he knows who is a right fit. And the relationship between Alderson and Cohen is so strong and Alderson is so respected that honestly, it might be up to him, right? Like, Alderson might have the autonomy to get to choose, like, hey, go all in for Theo, or, or a guy like Theo, an experienced guy with a successful resume, or if you think it's better to go for a young up-and-comer that's ready for a shot, do that. Whatever you think gets us to a World Series in the next four years. And I'm telling you, Mets fans, Steve Cohen is coming in, and I believe – um you know, Thornton said it too. Steve Cohen's not coming in to buy the Mets and, and make this like a 10-year project. Steve Cohen is coming in to, to buy the Mets to win a World Series soon, like in the next four years, kind of soon. Now, that if you have that argument, you could sit there and go, well, then maybe they are going after Theo Epstein. But <laughs> yeah, I think we're talking ourselves uh, yeah. into that. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, right? I think it's interesting. It can go a lot of ways. It really can, and it's, you know, I am I am so ecstatic to watch it play out because it's these front office kind of decisions are just fascinating, and it, it's, it's exciting for the Mets. So, all right, the last question uh, from a pretty long show today. It was, it's been fun. From at under the dredge, with the potential expansion of the analytics department on the horizon, how do you think we see changes play out from top to bottom across the organization? Modern equipment, better facilities, technological upgrades, a revamped scouting department. I I guess I'd say all yes. of the all of the above. I mean, revamping the analytics department is really 
I don't know how much it has to do with better facilities and things like that. I think it's that's more let's get a bunch of really smart people into a room and really pursue building the team through some numbers in addition to the scouting like the Yankees do, like the Dodgers do. The Mets analytical department and I'm no offense to the guys, they're working hard. There's no question, but I'm air quoting in a sense. It's really like three guys. It's not really a department per se. I think Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen are going to build a double-digit person analytics department that not only will bring numbers to decisions, but they'll actually be listened to. Because there's been times over the last couple of years where the analytics team said not to do something, and they did it anyway. <laughs> uh, so yeah. th- you, if, there's no point in building an analytics department if you're not going to listen to them. And... I also think and certainly have heard that they are doing analytics, but they're kind of living in 2018. You know, they're not using everything that teams are using now. And I want to go to those teams and take their people. (laughs) And that's where I want to see a lot of money invested from Steve Cohen is in the infrastructure. That's how you're going to build a sustained winner. It's going to be fun to sign JT Railmuto or Trevor Bauer or, you know, trade for Francisco Lindor and give him a $250 million contract extension. Like, that's going to be fun if that happens. But if, for the Mets to have sustained success, Steve Cohen needs to invest his money in everything related to the front office. He needs to hire the right people to run baseball. And as he said to the New York Post, the baseball people will make the baseball decisions. So if that's the case, you better make sure you get the right guys to make the decisions. And if that costs you more money, it costs you more money. You got it, pal. Analytics, you build a full analytics team and get to the most advanced stuff that you can, most current, and listen to them when they make recommendations. You can, you know, continue to build the scouting department. When people, people always, I, I see it in my mentions and everything. People want to revamp the scouting department. Just look at the history of the Mets draft over the last decade. <laughs> Mets draft good. Yeah. What like, do you need? You don't need to revamp no this. You don't need to revamp the scouting department. If you want to, you know, add a couple more scouts or, you know, add a couple things and, cha- and change some processes a little bit, I'm okay with that. But, you know, Tommy Tanis and Mark Tremuda do an incredible job. There's no reason that you need to revamp the scouting department. I, th- I, 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 I suggest you heavily look into how the Mets have drafted. They've certainly made some splashes in international free agency. And no, they're they're fine in the scouting department. But yeah, I think that's where the infrastructure has to be built up. That's how you're going to sustain success. If you want to just win for a couple years, you know, then the number one answer is just go buy some free agents and win for 2021 and maybe 2022. And then, you know, the guys kind of go to crap and the contracts start to go to crap. But if you build an infrastructure, that's how you're going to be a winner for five, six, seven years and routinely in the playoffs. And that's where the Mets need to be. I mean, they've have, they, they don't make the playoffs almost ever. <laughs> and I want them to be a routine contender every single year. So building up that infrastructure is key. And uh, as that user said, analytics department it is certainly a big part of that. All right. You heard the man. And God, it'd be... It'll be nice that these things are even, like, in a discussion 
where it's like, okay, these things should be happening now and actually using them. And we've heard so much about how Rojas is a guy that values uh, analytics, you know, and well, to what extent, who knows? It sounds like Jeremy Hefner is Big time. like all, yeah. yeah, Jeremy Hefner's like almost, data nerd central. Yeah, he's super forward thinking. And uh, Jeremy Hefner is a guy that I think the pitching kind of didn't do so well this year. But I think if you get if they didn't have that break and he got more time to really work through this stuff with them, I think Jeremy Hefner is going to be a really really good pitching coach in this league, and uh, I, I wouldn't give up on him at this time for sure. Yeah, it's not Jeremy Hefner's fault. Rick Porcello is exactly what we thought. Michael right. Waka is exactly what we thought. Exactly. I mean, if anything, yeah. you can make the argument that Edwin Diaz bounced back really well this year. David Peterson did not pitch like a rookie; he pitched like a really solid veteran. Steven Matz is somebody that, you know, hopefully he's going to get to work with and let's root for him turning it around. Uh, you don't get credit for DeGrom getting even better, but <laughs> that's just that's just because DeGrom is a freak in nature. So, but I, I'm a fan of Hefner like you are. And I'll tell you what I will judge before we close out the show, and I'm curious how you feel. I'll judge Hefner, and this is silly to judge him really all on one thing, but what version we get of Cindergard in the future. Interesting. Yeah, I I'm interested to see what Syndergaard comes back as because he's That's work, fair. Yeah, he's working his tail off. Uh I'm interested to see when he starts, you know, getting into rehab games because there's gonna be minor league baseball again next year. So he's gonna get to go throw rehab games in uh Brooklyn and or St. Lucie, Syracuse, all these places. So I'm glad that's gonna happen. But I'm interested to see if Syndergaard comes all the way back. By everything I've heard, he seems to be on track. And he's a tireless worker. I mean, you, you all, everyone sees it. Like, Syndergaard's not a lazy guy. So he's giving everything he has to this. And I'm interested to see where he comes back. But a guy like Hefner should be able to maximize an arm like that. I, I totally agree. With When you have stuff like that, you shouldn't be ever have any RA in the fours. <laughs> you shouldn't. No. You shouldn't struggle to miss bats at times. He just... I, there's got to be some mechanical adjustment that can help him maybe get a little more rise on his fastball rather than sink it at, at times. Because when he's throwing his 100-mile-an-hour sinker, it's really hard, but people are going to make contact with it. If that if he can get that 100-mile-an-hour and really elevate it more, I think you'd, I think you'd see a different pitcher. Uh, I truly do. Um, but, yeah, no, I agree. It was, a, it was a really fun show. We covered a lot of topics. I think we went a little longer than we usually do, but it uh, just shows you know how much we could talk. And uh, just appreciate everyone listening and just want to reiterate, I think we need to do this. I, I certainly hear this on other podcasts, right? Please follow on Twitter at That's So Mets Pod. Follow me at PSL2Flushing. Follow Connor at Connor J. Rogers. Rate, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. Uh, it, it certainly is going to help us. A, a lot of podcasts seemingly are taking the winter off. And that's so Mets is not doing that. We will be here every Tuesday slash Wednesday in your feeds. And yeah, we're, we're not stopping anytime. There's, there's way too much to talk about with this team. And this off season is going to be, I have a feeling it's going to be one of our favorite off seasons to talk about. So we certainly started it at the right time and I, I can't wait to keep going. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, everyone. We will catch you next week. Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. 
Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet Sports Betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight bet or parlay. That's $200 that you can use for all the upcoming basketball action, including the men's basketball tournament. If you bet at least $500 during the first and second round of the tournament, you can get a trip to the five-star rated Win Las Vegas. Offer subject to change, terms, and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in a state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700.